Uh, this is the third week of our series in 1 Thessalonians, which we're calling Faithful Presence. And this week, we're going to dwell in the implication of the series. We wouldn't need a spirituality for the long haul if we knew that the long haul was going to be easy. You know, we wouldn't need it if we didn't sense to some degree that this is an uphill battle, that there are challenges that come our way. Because we know life isn't simple. Life comes with struggles and hardships and afflictions and sometimes suffering and loss and sometimes temptations. And sometimes we get through it, sometimes people get through it, and sometimes we don't. So how can we know we're going to have a spirituality for the long haul? How do we know we'll be faithful to our last breath if we don't even know what the future holds for us? In our passage today, Paul, he reflects more on uh, the realities he faced in preaching the gospel. He reflects more on his own circumstances and the suffering he endured. But he also shows us that one of the more imminent challenges of the long-haul journey of following Jesus isn't so much the afflictions and persecutions we face, but satanic attack. Now, some of you are ready to check out, uh, but stay with me here. Uh, when I discuss this issue with people, I might meet someone who's antagonistic toward faith. Faith They could grant the, the premise that maybe there's a God. But the fact that I would also believe in a, a, you know, an evil spiritual being named Satan, that's difficult to swallow. Yet on the other hand, uh, we've also had negative experiences within the church where people overemphasize uh, the realities of Satan. You know, demons are hiding in every nook and cranny, and we, we constantly have to be on the offense. This is one of those areas in faith where we can feel a little awkward or embarrassed. But I don't think God wants us to be awkward about it. After all, Jesus encountered Satan one-on-one. -on -one. Paul encountered Satan, and Satan is discussed in the New Testament with over 40 references. So he's not, you know, an extra who just wanders through the New Testament's drama. He is one of the key players. So what do we do with him? What do we do with him? C.S. Lewis is insightful on this matter. He wrote, There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. What Lewis is saying is if we ignore these realities altogether, Satan wins. If we focus too much on these realities that all we do is think about him, Satan wins. And I have to admit, if I was going to fall into one of those temptations, it would be the materialist temptation. I don't talk about Satan a lot in my spiritual life. I don't uh, pray against Satan uh, in my spiritual life. I try to focus on Jesus, but I've, in preparing for the sermon, I realized that maybe I de-emphasize Satan too much. And, and, and the, the nice thing about Lewis and about Paul is they show us a middle ground where we don't deny these realities, nor do we have an unhealthy interest in them, but we find a way to navigate life as it comes at us pursuing Jesus. And so as Paul continues to instruct this very young church, you know, a couple months old, in the faith, the things they need to know, what they need to flourish. He starts talking about fighting the good fight. And that's the big idea I want to explore this morning, so you can add it to your doodle. As we fight the good fight of faith, the victory is already won. 
And so in the meantime, God has given us people, joy, and prayer. So let's pick uh, 1 Thessalonians back up. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, um, everything will be on the screen. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one of uh, the church Bibles home with you. It's our gift to you. Second chapter of Thessalonians, verse 17, Paul writes, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul has already described his relationship to uh, the church of Thessalonica as a nursing mother. It's a powerful image. And he knew uh, that the tension of leaving too soon would be troublesome. And he describes being apart from them as being torn away from them. He had to leave way too soon, way too soon. And the word he uses for torn away is actually orphaned. Paul feels that he had orphaned the Thessalonians. The way he uses this word is like a nursing mother having her child taken away from her, orphaned. With as much force as he can muster with a metaphor, he says, I've been orphaned from you. You've been orphaned from me. I miss you. And this writing letters, this long distance relationship, it's hard on the heart. But then he adds, but I've only been torn away from you in person, not in heart. It's literally in face, not in heart. I like that. There's this little smoky uh, shop down the street for me, a little dingy uh, that I frequent like once or twice a year called the Persian Tea House. It's wonderful. And uh, one time I was there and I had the privilege of meeting uh, the owner. And he's just, there's a picture of him. Uh, he's tall haired, lovely spirited Persian gentleman. And he welcomed me and my friend as we walked in by saying, I love you. Merry Christmas. It's just such a great welcoming. You're like, this is going to be a nice experience. And so we're chit-chatting. And, and after a bit, he says, well, where are you from? I said, Canada. And he said, oh, okay. And he said, welcome to my heart. I've never forgotten that greeting. Welcome to my heart. Like my Persian friend, Paul, he opened his life wide. He made space in his heart for the Thessalonians. He welcomed them into his heart and he holds them so dearly within his heart that he longs to be reunited with them. He holds them so dearly within his heart that he describes them as his hope, as his joy, as his crown, as his glory. Now, is this even an appropriate way to speak of people? Because if you look through scripture, this is usually how you speak of God. It's very odd that Paul's speaking of the Thessalonians in this way. Now, I'll swear in, in scripture, uh, Paul would say, look, when it comes to matters of salvation, when it comes to being reconciled with God, we have no reason to boast but in Christ and him crucified. But when the love and the joy of what God has done for us through his son grips us, we not only grow in our love toward God, but in our capacity to love others. You know, if you've, if you've been a follower of Christ for any time, that, that Christians have this strange way of like burrowing into your heart. And that a, a deep relationship with someone else who follows Jesus is unlike any other relationship. Spiritual friendship. There's a joy, Paul is saying, of opening our hearts to one another. 
about allowing our brothers and sisters to occupy space in there in such a way that they become our boasting. And the boasting is what God is doing in them, what God is doing in you. And so Paul is saying, look, if I'm going to boast in anything of what uh, God has accomplished through me, through the preaching of the gospel, the one thing I want from him is the crown, which is you. If I'm going to be boasting in anything, it's you. And if I'm going to be rewarded with anything, oh, Thessalonians, it's you. I'm trying to like you guys that much. I'm trying. I'm just joking. I love you guys. Paul says he has this deep love and joy for the Thessalonians. They're his hope, his crown, his, his glory. But then he knows this will be met with resistance. This will be met with resistance. Look at verse 18 again. I wanted to come to you again and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us. Elsewhere, Paul will try to go to a city and he'll say, God blocked the way. God didn't allow us. Or they'll try something else and say, the spirit said, go somewhere this way. So sometimes it's, it, it's not allowed by God. Sometimes God redirects his path. But here, Paul's explicit. He says, Satan hindered me from coming back to see you. Satan in the scriptures is a fallen angel, a powerful spiritual being, Lord of all that is evil, the father of lies, the instigator of the fall, the enemy of love, truth, and God. I can tell by your laughter the slide came too early. As I've already said, the existence of Satan is problematic for us, and, and most uh, popular culture has made a mockery of this idea. A mockery of this idea that we can make cartoons like this and chuckle at the idea of a powerful spiritual foe whose sole aim is to destroy us. And then we depict him like this because we don't take it seriously. We don't think it's actually a reality we have to wor worry about. You know, in our modern framework, we want to demythologize the scriptures. We don't want these awkward parts of the scriptures that feel like a relic of the past. But the task of reading scripture isn't to reshape scripture according to our worldview and what we believe, but to allow scripture to speak into how we see the world. When it comes to Satan, John Stott offered some wise advice. He wrote, we need to rid our minds of the medieval caricature of Satan, dispensing with the horns, the hooves, and the tail. We are left with the biblical portrait of a spiritual being, highly intelligent, immensely powerful, and utterly unscrupulous. If this is who Satan is, and we don't take this reality seriously, or we deny him altogether, he wins. A great movie, The Usual Suspects, put it this way. The greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he doesn't exist. Paul didn't doubt the existence of Satan. He knew that Satan was a very real enemy and threat. Satan was the one inhibiting Paul from seeing this church that he loved so deeply. But what was Satan trying to do? Just irritate Paul? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what Paul has to say about what this was doing to him. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, 
We kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it's come to pass, pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. We see two things here. First, Satan made the separation between Paul and the Thessalonians unbearable for him. There is an unbearable weight of concern for the Thessalonians, and the concern was what? That Satan would somehow tempt the Thessalonians and undermine the work of the gospel in their lives. This made it an unbearable situation for Paul. This was a godly uh, anxiety that he had for the church. So Paul, being concerned about the well-being and their flourishing, is willing to let Timothy go by himself. He's willing to let Timothy leave his beloved child in the faith. This is how great his concern was for the Thessalonians. And he's concerned because Satan is a tempter. And this is the first appearance of Satan in the scriptures as a tempter in the Garden of Eden. And you know what he did. He tempted Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he also tempted Adam to give in to passivity and remain completely silent while this was all happening. That's a temptation that's often overlooked, just as present. Adam is just as culpable. But what temptation is Paul worried that Satan's going to bring toward the Thessalonians? The temptation of suffering. That's what he's worried about. Paul says he sent Timothy to make sure they weren't shaken by afflictions. Look again at verses 3 and 4. For you know that we're destined for affliction. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we're going to suffer affliction just as it's come to pass and just as you know. Paul says, look, as a follower of Jesus, there are certain afflictions I'm going to guarantee you're going to take place in your life because the gospel is in conflict with the world and with spiritual powers. You guys aren't exempt from it. And Paul says, I'm not exempt from it, which means I'm not exempt from it. And our church is not exempt from it either. And Paul knows that the Thessalonians in particular are in a vulnerable state because he had to leave before he could establish godly leadership and elders. A lot of the churches he founded, he had time to do that. But with the Thessalonians, they are new Christians without faithful instruction and leaders to look to. And Paul knows that without good leadership, without other Christians pointing the way, Satan will put pressure on us when we've experienced suffering and affliction. Tempting us to what? Renounce God in the midst of it. You know this, when tragedy strikes your life, or someone you know, or the world, Satan doesn't tempt you with the question, but the implication. You see, we start asking, where was God? Why would God allow this? Can we trust that God is good? Asking these questions isn't a bad thing to do. In fact, I hope you ask these questions. The problem is if we allow Satan to tempt us with the implications. Satan enjoys telling us that our suffering is meaningless and purposeless. That God was somehow absent and that he does not care. And if we fall into these temptations and over time we begin to believe them in our core, our faith will erode because we're declaring that God is not good, he is not trustworthy, he is not faithful. I've seen 
suffering destroy people's faith in God. I've seen, uh, I've seen uh, people I love um, commit suicide because the suffering was so great. I've watched friends get divorced because of loss. And all of these people were godly Christian people who couldn't endure the suffering. And I don't say that as an insult. They just were suffering. And yet I've also seen people go through suffering, friends of mine who lost their two-year-old and others, whose faith somehow flourishes. They don't undermine the loss or the pain or the excruciation of it all, but somehow their conviction of the love of God grows. Their faith flourishes. You see, the, the love of Christ is not just a feeling, but a faithful presence, even in the very worst moments of life, even in the very worst moments of history. Once again, C.S. Lewis is helpful. He says, The problem of reconciling suffering with the existence of a God who loves is only insoluble so long as we attach a trivial meaning to the word love. You see, if we think God's love means that we'll just feel nice all the time, that's not going to hold up when we face affliction. That's not going to hold up when we face suffering. But if we define God's love as his faithful presence, that he is with us no matter what we're going through, and even if we can't understand the mystery of what's going on around us, that sort of love will help us in the midst of affliction and suffering. And in that sort of love, there's comfort and hope. Do you know what the shortest sentence is in the Bible? It's two words. Do you know what they are? Jesus wept. The Son of God wept over what? The death of a friend. He entered into grief and he mourned and he wept. He knows the pain of suffering. And instead of offering us a nice theological answer about why God allows suffering in the world, what does the Son of God show us? God weeps with us. And I've seen these words comfort people time and time again and they've comforted me time and time again. But in Christ, we also have a hope that all wrongs will one day be righted, that all injustices will be met with justice, that all oppression will be met with liberation, that losses will be restored ten times. When? At Christ's return. You see, if we deny God, we have no hope. At the end of the day, all you have on your plate is your suffering and the oppression of this world, and it will never be fixed, period. That's it. End game. But in Christ, we have this profound comfort and hope. And Paul puts it this way, and it's counterintuitive. He says to the Corinthians, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. I'm not going to tell you how that all works out. I don't know. I know there's this mystery and this hope that God grants us that even in the worst atrocities of this world, there is a glory coming that will rectify everything. That's our hope. But the important part of this letter is this. Satan did not win. Satan didn't win. 
Even though he's trying to distort the afflictions of the Thessalonians, trying to tempt them to renounce their faith, he couldn't win. He didn't do it. Look at verses 6 through 10. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now, we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Satan could not thwart what God was doing in the Thessalonians' lives. And Timothy, he brought a good report. He brought good news back to Paul. And as Paul reflects on how relieved he is to hear that they're still thriving in Christ, we actually discover how to overcome Satan in our lives and his attacks. You see, in Ephesians 6, Paul gives us uh, spiritual armor. Uh, but here, he paints a different portrait. He says, here's what God has given you for the long haul. People, joy, and prayer. This is what you need for the long haul. People, joy, and prayer. First, God uses people to sustain us in the good fight of faith. So even though Satan was thwarting, uh, thwarting, thwart, thwarting uh, Paul from coming to the Thessalonians, he couldn't stop Timothy. You know, Timothy came and he encouraged the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians encouraged him. Timothy comes back, encourages Paul. Satan couldn't stop God using his people to mutually love and encourage one another. And then Paul expresses this in the most extreme way. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. We live. We live. Someone's 12-12 alarms going off and that makes me so happy. Bless you. We live. Paul implies that if the Thessalonians were falling apart, he would fall apart. His life is so intricately bound up with theirs that their flourishing is his flourishing. But this isn't codependency like Winnie the codependent poo. Uh, I was reading Ansley and Maggie, uh, the story uh, out of Disney Adventures, which is riveting, and this sentence jumped out at me. Without Christopher Robin, Pooh felt empty. He didn't know how to be happy without his best friend. This is an example of codependence, textbook case. Now, to be fair, if Christopher Robin was somehow Pooh's like, maker, if he was the author and perfecter of Pooh's life, this would be an appropriate response to his maker, right? But that's you know, getting too far into the theology of Winnie the Pooh. Uh, but here's the thing. If you can't be happy without a person in your life, like if your happiness is so bound up in their presence in your life that you can't imagine being okay with, with them at all, you probably need to examine that. Just Google codependency, and you're going to realize we all need to uh, examine how we relate to one another. And yet what Paul uh, is talking about here isn't codependency, but interdependency, interdependence. You see, the, the news of the Thessalonians standing fast is refreshing to Paul. It gives him life. Why? Because they're standing fast in Christ. Their flourishing in Christ is Paul's flourishing in Christ. Their hope in Christ is Paul's hope in Christ. They're mutually encouraged that together they're standing fast in Jesus. And that's what encourages Paul. And that's what gives him even more joy. 
I don't know what you're going through in this room. I don't know what afflictions are coming your way. I don't know what the future holds for many of us. But what I do know from this passage is that we can't expect to go through the long haul of spirituality, uh, long haul of spirituality on our own. You need the people sitting beside you. You need the people in this room. You need the people God has placed in your life for your mutual encouragement, love, and support. This is one of the ways in which Satan's attacks are thwarted. It's easier to pick off lone sheep. Second, God gives us joy for the battle. This is important. Paul feels so much joy about what God is doing in the Thessalonians' lives that he can't thank God enough. Don't you want that experience? To feel so much joy in Christ and in what he's doing in the lives of people around you, that you can't thank God enough because joy produces thankfulness and thankfulness produces joy. You become this loop of joy that can sustain us even in dark moments. You see, joy is fundamental to the Christian experience. Satan loves a joyless Christian almost as much as he loves a joyless church. It hurts our witness if we don't understand the boundless joy that God makes available for us through his spirit. Which is why Paul writes elsewhere, rejoice always. Rejoice, he says, in our sufferings. This isn't some trivial put on a happy face. This is a deep joy that is made possible through the spirit. And so if it sounds like the most unnatural thing to you, it's because it is. You wouldn't be able to muster up this sort of joy by your own when you're facing suffering. It's a gift from God and it will only be authentic when it's from Christ who dwells in you and when you present yourself faithfully to him with open hands. He wants to give you joy. So fight for joy. And the simplest way to start doing that, every day at the end of the day, write down, not on your phone but with a hand and a pen, five things that you're thankful to God for. And if all you can say is the mint in my toothpaste, start there. I'm telling you, thankfulness produces joy if joy is absent. And if joy is present, it produces thankfulness. And it'll revolutionize your pursuit of Jesus because it's no longer hard, dull work, but it's a joyous work following him because it's a loving work. Third, God gives us prayer in the fight against Satan. People, joy, and prayer. Paul says, I've been praying night and day for you guys. And and he's so entrenched in prayer that he just starts praying in the letter. Look at verses 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul doesn't give up. He prays yet again that God would make an opportunity for him to visit the Thessalonians. And I think this is permission to ask, what prayers have you stopped praying that maybe you should keep praying? What prayers have you stopped praying where you've assumed an answer where God's just saying, keep asking? But Paul's focus in this prayer is a superabundance of love. This isn't just, oh, that you would grow in love. He's saying that it would abound beyond limits, being exceedingly great and overflowing 
And as we talked about in the first week, the Spirit is the one who gives us love and joy. That joy is the overflowing of God's love in our lives. The church father, Christostom, wrote a sermon on this passage and something he said I, I really like. He said, Do you see the unrestrainable madness of love that is shown by his words? Paul writes, Make you to increase and abound instead of cause you to grow. What Christostom is saying is God wants to pour love into us and make us increase in it rather than have us have to work and grow at it. Of course, it involves our effort. Of course, love is action that requires effort. But God wants to fill us with an unrestrainable madness of love. And that's what will sustain you in spiritual warfare. When that love has gripped you, even in suffering, even if you can't make sense of it, you can't lose the deeply held conviction that God is with you, that God loves you. And while you might not have joy on your face in that moment, you'll have a smirk in your soul. Paul prays for us. He prays that we would have so much love that we would love everyone in this room. And what does he say? And all... These words challenged me this morning as I was walking behind a mentally unhealthy man who was swearing at everyone, even me. And then the Spirit reminded me, God loves this man. I started praying for him in my head. I wasn't quite bold enough to talk to him, but prayed for him. You can ask God for love. You can ask him to make you have a super abundance of love, an unrestrained madness of love and he will outmatch your wildest expectations. Lastly, Paul prays that God would establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and our God and Father. Blameless in holiness. He will establish your heart blameless in holiness. Anyone in this room just nailing it right now at being blameless in holiness? How are you doing at that? Is this even possible? What, what sort of prayer is this? The answer is yes, but not yet. We can't withstand Satan by our own strength. The archangel Michael, we're told in Jude, when he had an encounter against the devil, wouldn't speak directly to the devil, but said, the Lord rebuke you. How much more is this true of us? We can't withstand the devil by our own strength. So we can have all the people in the world. We can be happy as can be. We can even be praying. But if Christ is not at the center of all of this, None of these things will avail against Satan. Paul says that Christ is the one who will establish our hearts blameless in holiness when? At his coming. When Christ returns to make all things new, our hearts and our souls and our minds, our entire beings will be made new in an instant and we will be blameless and without a spot of sin. We'll be clean. We'll be made whole. And, and so knowing that that's where we're going, we live as if it's true now. Because it is. Christ has established you as blameless in holiness. And guess what? The, the long list of sins that you remember, that you feel guilt and shame over, yes, you need to confess them, but God does not remember your sins anymore. Because Christ has dealt with them on the cross going to be changed in an instant. And so if we fail on this side of eternity, and we will, 
if our hearts are to blame on this side of eternity, and they can be. Satan can't thwart what Christ will ultimately do for us on his return. And so what we know is the battle is won. The victory is ours. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus because on the cross, Christ defeated the powers. This is called Christus Victor. He defeated the powers of death and of our enemy, Satan. And so we fight knowing that the good fight is already won. We fight knowing that Christ is in us and he is greater than the one who's in the world. And we fight this good fight knowing that even in its unbearable moments, God has given us people, brothers and sisters. He gives us love and joy and he gives us the weapon of prayer. And no matter what you're facing, when you come to the Lord in prayer, he will meet you. Now, if this worldview is new to you, uh, and I I suspect for some it is, I get this could just be a completely overwhelming idea. But I want to invite you into a better fight. You're already having little mini battles every day. But whether you like it or not, you're already in this fight. And if you don't see that, it's because you're already knocked out. You're already blind. In 1918, John Singer Sargent was one of several painters commissioned by the British War Memories. And even though he was 62, he went to the Western Front, 62 years old. He goes to the Western Front. And he wrestled with what he saw. And and so he wrote a letter back to the British War Memories. And he said, the Ministry of Information expects an epic. And how can one do an epic without masses of men? Excepting at night, I have only seen three fine subjects with masses of men. One, a harrowing sight a field full of gassed and blindfolded men. And gassed uh, is the painting he produced. And in a horrific way, it captures the aftermath of battle, the effects of mustard gas, men blinded and marred. It captures the atrocity and horror of war, but also depicts the victims of war and how they're now blind to the war that still goes on around them every moment of the day. Like the men in the painting Gast, you've been blinded in war. You can't truly see what's happening around you. And the atrocity is you've been blinded to beauty. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, the God of this age, which he means Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul doesn't mince words. If you don't see the beauty of Christ, if you don't believe that Christ came and that he's God in the flesh and that he came to reconcile us, Paul minces no words. Satan has blinded you. Now you can write all of this off. You can say, okay, preacher, man, it's a little much. And and you can say, look, on judgment day, if that's a day, if there's a God, I'll be okay. I'm a pretty good person. But we've already said on judgment day, God's looking for someone who is blameless in holiness. Are you blameless? No one of a conscience can truly say they're blameless. Unless you're a narcissist, but then everyone around you knows you're not blameless. Only Christ can establish our hearts blameless on the day of his coming, blameless on the day of judgment. 
And if we don't see this liberating truth that the victory is won in him, that he offers us an eternity of love and joy that is unending, that we can only receive that if he establishes us as blameless, then on that day, Satan's accusations against us will stand. And we will be condemned. And that's what Satan wants. He wants you to reject Jesus Christ so that you'll spend an eternity with him missing out on endless love and joy. So I want to invite everyone here to fight the good fight of faith. It's not a safe fight. It's a good fight. And it's a good fight because Jesus has already won the victory on the cross for us. Satan, our foe, is defeated. And while he might tempt and try us between now and eternity, we know on that day we'll be made blameless in Christ's sight. and We'll be welcomed into his heavenly kingdom of eternal love and joy. And so as we fight the good fight, Amidst suffering, may our hope grow that an eternal glory will eclipse all the tears shed on this side of eternity.